Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Welcome to Escaping Society, Episode 17, Super Tramp. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And we're actually referring to Alexander Super Tramp, also known as Christopher McCandless. Um, or Alex McCandless. Or Alex McCandless. <laughs> and uh, we're referring to uh, someone who I think has inspired both me and Gumby. I, I don't want to talk for Gumby, but... Uh, I watched the movie Into the Wild several years ago and have read Into the Wild, the book, by John Krakauer. And if you're not familiar with the story, a uh, brief, very brief synopsis. Um, Alex, I refer to him back and forth, um, Alexander Supertramp. Well, he graduated from college. I think in, we should call him Chris in the beginning. Okay. So Chris, Christopher McCandless, he graduated from college in 1990, and he set out on a two-year adventure, um, but he had gone on adventures a lot before that, too, so it was kind of like he was, I don't want to say in training, but I think he he didn't just haphazardly go out on these adventures, but for two years, he, uh, he hitchhiked, he tramped around, hence the name Super Tramp, and... In 1992, in April, he ended up getting a ride up to Alaska, and that was his big adventure, was to go to Alaska and walk into the wild and and survive out there. And four months later, in August, um, 113 days living off the land, um, he died, and he was 24 years old. What did he take out with him, like 10 pounds of rice? So that was the only food? (laughs) Yeah, he... He had previously, like I said, he had gone on adventures, and he did pretty well um, living off of the land. And I'm not saying that he didn't know what he was doing in Alaska. A lot of people um, say that about him. But I think living 113 days or even 10 days off the land in Alaska is something to be commended. Um, Like I would mentioned in the book, Into the Wild, uh, we also watched some documentaries just recently just to see what other information we could find out about Christopher McCandless, Alexander Supertramp. And there are two documentaries that we watched. One of them um, was Call of the Wild, which was filmed about the same time as the movie Into the Wild. And then we also watched Return to the Wild, which was a PBS show about... um, mostly his family members. And uh, we also, Gumby found this 2020 segment about Christopher McCandless. So those were some of the um, 
prep work things that we did, and if you uh, if you Google those, you'll probably be able to watch them yourself. But in this episode, we're going to talk a lot more about just the, not necessarily, you know, what Alexander Supertramp did, but kind of what it represented to us and in a bigger picture. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, I guess I'll start with like why I'm talking about Christopher McCandless, also known as Alexander Supertramp. Um, <laughs> You know, this podcast is about escaping society, so one of the things we were wanting to include in our topics is people who have inspired us, people who have, in one way or the other, escaped society or attempted to, to escape society. Um, and I like highlighting different people because that can look a lot of different ways. You know, there's not one way to do it. There's not a roadmap to this kind of thing. Um, and so Christopher McCandless, one of the things I love about him is his guts. Mm -hmm. I mean, his courage, you know, like he took on a lot and he ended up taking on maybe more than, you know, he could, he could chew. Um, although that's kind of debatable depending on how you look at it, you know, like that's one of the things I like about his story as well is that it's so controversial. There's people who make a hero out of him. Um, and I don't think that's appropriate, you know, necessarily. And there's people who like villainize him who just say he was a fucking idiot and he got what he deserved. And I definitely don't agree with that either. You know, he's a human being. It's a mixed bag. So, um, you know, his quest was to turn away from this society. He grew up in a middle class home or an upper middle class, I guess. His dad worked for NASA, um, developed some equipment. And his, his mom and his dad raised him like with a lot of money, um, with a lot of comforts. And he, from what I read, was very entrepreneurial himself when he was a kid, really good at making money. But somewhere along that, that way, you know, there's stories about him in high school where he'd go and hang out with homeless people and buy cheeseburgers for them while his kids were, his uh, friends were going out and getting drunk. Um, so he started developing this interest, this, this guilt, you know, why am I living this way? And there's these people down the road that don't have anything. And, uh, that makes me think of other things I've read about what our culture looked like on first contact with indigenous tribes here on the uh, the east coast of North America. I've heard one of the things they were the most critical about, especially the Native Americans that got brought back over to Europe, you know, like, and then got brought back home, <laughs> is they couldn't believe that there were people that had huge amounts of food and other people that could look through their window that were going hungry. That didn't make sense to them. And I feel like Chris maybe felt something of that. You know, there's an inequity here, an, an um, imbalance that I'm not comfortable with. I don't, I don't like what this wealth represents to me. Um, and he was said to have felt guilty about that, and I felt like it was the wealth was misleading. Like if you're, if you have money, it throws everything into a context that you can't really delve into yourself. You know, go on the spiritual quest he was after. So. Amidst the other things going on, and also, you know, I'm talking about kind of the lofty ideals of Chris McCandless, he had a lot of problems with his parents, too. Um, mixed in with that were, I think, just kind of the rite of passage things, the growing pains. Um, you know, growing up, and he's got this beef with his dad and his mom, he's not getting along with them, and it's just like, you know what, screw it. I'm taking off, I'm not going to tell you guys where I'm going. Basically, he ran away from home, um, just at an age when... You know, he's not a minor anymore. Otherwise, we'd be talking about this runaway. We don't usually use that word with Christopher McCandless, but essentially to me, that's what he did. He ran away from home. Um, 
and yeah, he just traveled around and and searched and uh, explored what it was like to live with no money. I love that he burned his money um, right off the bat. He started off in his car on a road trip, you know, kind of like we're living out of our van, and then the car made a mistake and the car got flooded and it wouldn't start and instead of like being attached to the car he's like screw it this is another opportunity to let go mm-hmm. so burned his money burned his id let his car go and now he's living out of a backpack hitchhiking um and you know we've hitchhiked out of our backpack and i've hitchhiked out of my backpack for um several months in 1998 so i feel like i can kind of identify and resonate with what that felt like for him that liberation the hardship of it but also the romanticism of it and I was going to add in there, I don't, know, I don't know if you said this or not, but uh, in the 2020 segment, John Krakauer, the, uh, the author of Into the Wild, he called what McCandless did a rite of passage. And that kind of got me to thinking about like, hey, yeah, you know, and, and I mean, Gumby also was saying this, but like, hey, yeah, you know what? Um, in indigenous cultures, this was something that even younger people did, like 14 years old boys would go up on top of a mountain and fast for four days and see visions and come down. And that was like a, a definite a ritual for them. Yeah. And I think that was part of what I was doing in 98 too. I was in my early twenties, like Chris McCandless. And I think that was part of what I was craving was, uh, the things that I was taught that made me a man in this culture didn't make me feel like a man. Mm-hmm. Um, going to work, punching in on a clock, getting the paycheck, uh, just being obedient to my boss. I felt like I was a slave. I was a slave to a clock. I was a slave to a way of life I, I didn't really agree with. I was a slave to my boss who was telling me what to do and, you know, talked to me very disrespectfully often, depending on the job. Um, I feel like I wanted to test myself, to really get out there and see what I was made of. And I think that was one of the, the impulses of Chris McCandless, too. Yeah, and I mean, I agree that in his personal life, um, Chris was running away from a lot of things. But I really admire, too, that this was a pilgrimage for him. Like, he could not see doing anything else before he did this. Like, he really had to go through this Um whatever you want to call it, a pilgrimage, a spiritual journey, finding yourself or that rite of passage. So, yeah, did you want to have any, say anything else about that? Oh, not at the moment. <clears throat> well, there was somebody else in the book that... Uh, there were a couple examples, actually, in the book, and I really liked reading about them, um, and Gumby will probably expound upon this more, but there was one in particular that it was... It was really interesting because Chris, of course, had his uh, his other name, Alexander Supertramp, or Alex, um, and this Everett Roos, um, he went through several name changes. He was someone that back in the 30s, he was about, at the time, the first time he went out on an adventure by himself, he was 16 years old, I think, and I, I think he did things before that too. And we're talking about when the West was still... Like, there were still places that were just untouched, and you were in the middle of nowhere. He was out in um, kind of the Utah area. So um, in the book, it talks about Everett Roos's many adventures and how he changed his name uh, several times and at one point carved into the red rocks of a a gulch where he was known to be at, Nemo. Um, And many uh, parallels to the Christopher McCandless story, but he died 
at 20 years of age in 1934. But that whole thing about changing your name and like having to go out there and, and prove something to yourself and, and just go through that rite of passage. Um, yeah, and I think it's really important, the name change thing. That's a theme that comes up a lot and came up with me. Like, um, I got the name Gumby around the time I was doing my hitchhiking. And I think that's something that in indigenous cultures, they understand more. Um, and I'm not saying I understand all the, the reasons why they <coughs> have name changes in indigenous cultures, but I'm interested by the parallel that that happens in indigenous cultures. And it also seems to happen with a lot of questers from Alexander Supertramp to Peace Pilgrim. Um, there's a lot of people who part of their their way of getting out there has to do with dropping their name and picking up another name. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're I, dying away. Yeah, there's a power in that. Like in our culture, we're taught to... Somebody once told me that in our culture, we think of th- everything as a noun. It's a possession, a person, place, or a thing. But in reality, everything is a verb. It's becoming something. It's changing. Um, so I feel like a name to me has a lot to do with that you know you're given a name at birth before anybody knows who you are you keep that name for the rest of your life and then they chisel it on a tombstone so people who have never known you know not nothing about you can see your name chiseled on this tombstone hundreds of years after you're in the ground and you know of course the embalming fluid the the vault i used to be a grave digger um you know just preserving the body like everything is treated like a noun it's supposed to be here and last forever it's a thing so I feel like the changing of the name is sort of an acknowledgement of a different way of treating reality. Everything's a verb. It's becoming something. So you can drop. You can infuse your old name with all the things you want to leave behind, let it go. And then when you get this new name, it sounds like Alex picked this name for himself. So with Alexander Supertramp, he infused that new name with everything he wanted to be. And even though I haven't read him actually saying this, I feel like... Maybe he felt like he couldn't be everything he aspired to be as Christopher McCandless. That was the name of a boy who did certain things, who pulled around a, you know, a little cart around the neighborhood with beans he was trying to sell, who went to college, who, you know, kind of jumped through all the hoops he was supposed to. He wanted to see if he could be something else, and to be something else, he wanted to change his name and become something else. Alexander Supertramp. So I think that's a really important part of his story and my story and so many other stories. Uh, <clears throat> well, like I said, I was a hobo in 98. I traveled around and hitchhiked. Um, and something that I felt that Christopher also talked about was not wanting to just live, but to be alive. I think in our culture, we're taught to live. It's the length of life. You know, when I when people debate with me about the pros and cons of our culture, one of the things that comes up pretty quick is like, well, look at the longer lifespan we have. Do you really want to live like one of those like people living in the woods? You know, they died at 40. <laughs> and to me, that's the mother culture talking in them, you know, that it's this thing, again, this noun, like, well, if it lasts longer, it must be better. Um, but I don't see a lot of people that like, to me, really live, you know, in capital letters, test themselves, see the beauty of the world deeply, you know, or are moved by things strongly. It seems to me that when you really live, you're less attached to your life. It's a celebration, but you're willing to give your life to something because you realize there's a bigger picture. So that's something that also, to me, influences the story of Alexander Supertramp. 
Um, John Krakauer, when he wrote about the death of Christopher McCandless in the woods, and I'm switching back to that that name because the last thing he ever wrote, he signed his name Christopher McCandless, and there's been some discussion about why that is. Some people say that in the end he decided that he was Christopher McCandless, so he kind of relinquished this idea of Alexander Supertramp, almost like, you know, that was kind of a maybe even a foolish thing, a regretful thing. I'm leaving that behind. I I'm, am, in fact, Christopher McCandless. When I read that, I don't interpret it the same way. I think that he was, at this point, he wanted to live, and if there was a chance somebody was going to come along and read his note, which, by the way, in the note, it says he's in trouble, um, need help. This is no joke. He underlined that. To me, that's a real important part of that, because if he signed his name Alexander Supertramp, <laughs> right. He's got to acknowledge the the people that are liable to come by that note. It starts sounding like a joke again. Super tramp. But Christopher McCandless sounds like a legitimate all-American kid that got lost in the woods. So I don't know that in his heart he really didn't feel like Alexander Super Tramp anymore. I think he was just doing the practical decision. Like if I needed help and I was trying to get out and my options were slim, I might sign my name, the name I was born on my birth certificate, even though I don't feel like that person anymore. Just because I know it's the practical thing to do. Um... And, again, he took off in, what was it, 1990? Mm, I think so. Was found in yeah, 1992. Yeah. I remember the 90s, like, as one of the more, the most pivotal parts of my life. You know, I was a little kid in the 80s, and I got a lot of fond memories about that. But the 90s was when I really became me. Um, I was a similar age, a little bit younger than Christopher McCandless. I dropped out of high school in 93, so, you know, he'd already graduated college. But there was something in the air in the 90s. I remember hanging out with my friends. Everybody was going on a road trip. I had a couple friends that took off and went to Arizona. And, you know, they lived, like, by thieving and just, you know, doing a lot of crystal meth out there. (laughs) Natural Born Killers had come out. Um, There was just this feeling in the air of, like, an escaping society kind of feeling. Uh, There was a lot of anarchy in the air back then. Um, Stuff I don't see in kids in this generation. Just everybody was kind of like, oh, man, we're, we're hitting the road. We're like, we want to be outlaws. We want to we wanna do drugs. We want to break laws. We, we don't want to – we don't believe in the convention anymore. So I think Christopher McCandless was part of this thing in the air, and I don't know what that means to say something's in the air. It's a very vague term, but it's a feeling. There was something about the 90s, Generation X, and uh, one of the documentaries we saw, that guy mentioned that, how he was, you know – interviewing college kids about what they wanted to do and he was kind of remarking like yeah even when I got out of college you know I went to Africa and like you know I didn't really know what I was going to do or whatever it was a big kind of almost an irresponsible adventure you know I guess I wanted to test myself like he did and he was not finding this in the people of this generation I'm not saying it's not there I know a couple of a couple of students right now that uh former students that are like taking off and like climbing mountains and traveling around um, but I think it's less. There was something about the nineties and Christopher McCandless is one of those symbols to me of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a letter from, um, the book that was given to, in, um, Alex's travels, he had met a guy and this is not the guy's real name, Ron. It was just a, a name that was given in the book, but I think I, can I read that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I, I think, so this guy was like, 80 years old when he got this letter. He had met Alex briefly, um, picked him up, and and they hung out for a while. At first, Alex was kind of bristly, like, I don't want to have any, you know, like, 
in like a, a relationship with you, like to, to get to know you. I just kind of want you to like, if you could just give me a ride, thanks. But this guy, um, they, they all of a sudden, you know, started hitting it off and talking with each other. So when Ron, this guy that was helping Alex out, he got this letter. So I'm going to read a little bit from the book here. This is Alex. I'd like to repeat the advice I gave you before. Hold on. Before you read more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, you already said it was a letter. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. This is a letter. I'd like to repeat the advice I gave you before and that I think you really should make a radical change in your lifestyle and begin to boldly do things which you may previously never have thought of doing or been too hesitant to attempt. So many people live within unhappy circumstances and yet will not take the initiative to change their situation because they're conditioned to a life of security, conformity, and, conserv and conservatism, all of which may appear to give one peace of mind. But in reality, nothing is more damaging to the adventurous spirit within a man than a secure future. The very basic core of a man's living spirit is his, is his passion for adventure. The joy of life comes from our encounters with new experiences, and hence there is no greater joy than to have an endlessly changing horizon, for each day to have a new and different sun. I could keep going, but I, I just, I really feel like Alex is expressing what I feel, I think what Gumby feels a lot too. I love the where he says that nothing's more dangerous to a man's spirit than a secure future, or that might not be verbatim, but mm -hmm. that, that feeling. Yeah, I guess um, I'll skip a little bit. It says, uh, you think that I'm stubborn, but you're even more stubborn than me. And he talks about how this guy probably had a chance to stop and see the Grand Canyon, which he had never seen in his 80 years on this earth. But he probably didn't because he had to rush back home to his life that he just lives day in and day out the same thing. Like so many of us do, right? He says, don't settle down and sit in one place. Move around. Be nomadic. Make each day a new horizon. You're still going to live a long time, and it would be a shame if, you'd not, if you did not take the opportunity to revolutionize your life and move into an entirely new realm of experience. So, yeah, that is just a great letter, I think. Yeah, and this old man, he's a remarkable guy himself. Uh, he's called Ron Franz in the book, but that's not his real name. We don't know his real name. But one of the things that I just love about this guy is he was in his 80s. And Christopher wrote this letter that Teresa just wrote, uh, read part of, encouraging the guy to give up everything. And damn if he didn't do it. <laughs> like, he gave up his house. He moved into his truck. I think he, like, actually went to the campsite out in the desert that Chris used to have. I mean, think about how hard it is to change when you're younger. You know, some of you may be hearing this. Probably not a lot of you are in your 80s listening to us say this. Um, think about how hard it is to even consider, like, giving up everything, you know, just hitting the road, living a life more like that. And people tend to get more rigid, more set in their ways as they get older. So this guy, I feel like there should be a book written about this guy. <laughs> he took the advice of some 20-year-old drifter. Yeah, and to me, like, he was a devout <laughs> Christian. Um, and to me, this was like, I talk a lot of crap about Christians. I mean, I've just got a lot of criticism about the whole Christianity, the whole thing. But this guy, to me, is one of those Christians I admire. To me, he was actually listening to the voice of God. And if it came through some young hitchhiker, you know, giving him advice, that's God. He went for it. Like, this is good advice. 
Um, it's also one of the sadder parts of the book because when he found out, he prayed for Chris when he went to Alaska and he even wanted to adopt Chris. Um, he had adopted like 14 kids in, where was he? Japan, I think. He was in the military. Yeah, he was in the military in Japan. And while he was in the military, his uh, family, his wife and his son, I believe, died in a car crash and it just crushed him. Um, so he started adopting kids. He wanted to fill his life, you know, that emptiness with like, I want to care for people. So at one time he had adopted like 14 kids over there. So for him to want to adopt Chris McCandless was not an unusual thing for him. He's like, you know, I want to be a father figure in your life. And, and we're not, we're not talking about like a legal adoption. It was like a kind of a spiritual bond. Like I'd like, to, I'd like to think of you as my son. Mm-hmm. Like I just feel that strongly about you. And Chris, it said, was uncomfortable with that and kind of squirmed and said, well, we'll talk more when I come back. You know, at this point, he was a close friend with this guy. Um, you know, they'd obviously made a connection, but <laughs> I mean, I guess, I don't know if you can imagine being 20 something and some guy that you're close with, you know, he wants to adopt you. It's kind of like, <laughs> what do you say to that? <laughs> yeah. So he kind of put him off, but it said that this guy prayed for him. And then when he found out he was dead, he lost all faith in his religion and, uh, became an atheist. And, uh, it's not that I think being an atheist is a tragedy over being a Christian, but his reasons for it, you know, to me that, that says something about the way he saw the world at that point, and uh, that makes me feel sad. Mm. That he just, to me, that was uh, a way that he lost meaning in the universe. And something um, something else McCandless had shared with, with Ron, with this guy we're talking about, is because a lot of people look at Alex, look at Chris, kind of like, what are you doing? And and sometimes people look at us like that. I mean, we've had people, you know, think we're homeless or maybe we are, I don't know, but, um, we're houseless. We're houseless, you know, to Chris or Alex, he reassured people like, I'm, I'm not destitute. I'm doing this by choice. This isn't something that, you know, I'm needing a handout or I'm needing you to adopt me or I need your help. I'm just asking like, Hey, if you can give me a ride, that's great. You know, if you want to have deep conversations, that's great too. Um, but not being afraid to be vulnerable and open uh, yourself to the universe. Oops, I'm getting into your stuff. <laughs> Get out of my stuff. I'm sorry. It's a segue. And yeah, as Teresa was beginning to say, um, you know, like one of the things that Chris, I think, represents to me is this idea of vulnerability. And we found this ourselves, like especially hitchhiking. When you don't protect yourself, when you open yourself to the universe, um, it's easier to come to harm, and that's why people worry about you. You know, you say you go and hitchhike, and your family starts worrying, and it's not completely irrational to worry about someone who's given up all the things our society teaches you is supposed to keep you safe. The part that they're missing is when you become vulnerable, you also open yourself up to life in capital letters and so many beautiful things. When I'm living my regular life, and you know, keeping a job. Well, actually, that's not my regular life anymore, but my former <laughs> life, keeping a job and all this stuff, you know, I have ups and downs, but it's sort of like in the middle. The ups and downs don't tend to go very extreme very often. When I hitchhike, I meet such remarkably beautiful people. My faith in humanity, every time I, I go on a hitchhiking adventure, I come back feeling like temporarily my faith in humanity is restored. And when you read Chris's letters, you see that too. He just goes on and on about the beauty of it, like the remarkable beauty. You got to get out there, give everything up. 
all those things you think are keeping you safe, they're actually like smothering you. They're keeping you apart from this wonderful, magical, beautiful world. And man, when I read those letters, I really resonated with that message. Um, like Chris, I, I was a big bookworm, still am. And I was moved by the words of Henry David Thoreau and Jack London, two of uh, Chris's favorite authors. Um, and yeah, that message just comes up again and again of like, you know, giving up stuff, simplifying, either just giving up everything or whittling it down to the bare essentials and just opening yourself, that vulnerability. If you're afraid of getting hurt, you're going to get hurt. We're all going to die in the end. You're going to get sick. You're going to die. And you're not going to have control over how that happens. It's an illusion. Safety is an illusion. And I feel like people like Chris really recognize that. You know, I got to get rid of this illusion. And if there's a little bit of safety that actually is there, by getting rid of a little bit of safety, I open myself to a lot of life. Um, his sister, I remember at the end of one of the documentaries said, you know, Christopher lived more in his 20, what was it, 24 years? Mm -hmm. 24 years. Most people live their whole life. And I don't think she was just saying that because she was romanticizing her brother. I, I think that's true. Um, I know, like, even Teresa and I being out here in the van, We've been traveling like really hardcore over the country. And I say hardcore, we're still on the East Coast. We're in uh, Alliance, Ohio right now. <laughs> but we were talking about how time is just all wacky out here. You know, we don't have the things that like we measure time by when we stay home. And it does feel like your days are full. I'm not saying every day is great, but it's full. It's bursting at the seams. Like, you just feel like you've lived a whole life in a week. You think about something that happened like a week ago and you're like, oh my God, that felt like a lifetime ago. I feel like I'm a different person now. Um, yeah. So Chris went out there and got it. Um, and to the people that call Alex foolish, who, and it seems like a lot of Alaskans, especially, you know, when they interview Alaskans, <laughs> yeah. they're like, oh, that's natural selection. You know, he had it coming. Stupid people. Stupid people come up here all the time and the, the Alaskan wilderness chews him up and spits him out. He's not Alaskan. Remember that. Yeah. Let people know he ain't one of us. He ain't Alaskan. <laughs> now I'm like doing the voice and everything because that pisses me off, even though I acknowledge there's truth in that. But like most things, it's one truth at the expense of a bigger truth to me. So there's truth in that. Alex, I think it's a fact. He should have prepared more. Mm -hmm. He should have like done other things. He made some mistakes. And at the end of his life, at least for part of what was going on right there at the end, we know there was some regret. He wanted to be rescued. Um, he wanted another chance. So these guys that are saying that in Alaska, I'm not going to say they're completely wrong. But I think what they're missing is... The other stuff we're talking about, this quest, this this life, this the guts he had to go out there and just see, like, is the universe going to take care of me here, now? Um, and you can't really know that until you do it. Like, you can't look at this from the outside. When we tell people about hitchhiking, uh, you know, people kind of humorous, you know, some people, some people don't listen to it at all. <laughs> But they don't really get it. It's not until you go out there and feel it. It's nothing that can be put into words. It's nothing I can even say. It's just a feeling. It's a different reality. And unless you go out there and see it from the inside, it's all just poetry and pretty words and quirkiness and whatever the hell else you want to define it from from the outside. But you can't really see it. And that's the way I feel about these people that are really critical about Chris. Um, like I said, I, I applaud him. I, I think he's had a lot of guts, and I think his life is not a tragedy. Um, I'd like to think at the end that even he didn't see it as a tragedy and, 
you know, people look at his last photo and talk about the way his eyes looked and his smile and everything, and they suggest that he didn't see it as a tragedy at the end. We'll never know. But uh, for me, looking at it from the outside and also having seen that kind of life from the inside, I find it remarkably inspiring. Yeah, and um, just looking at Chris, not as if he did everything right or wrong, but looking at him like this is an example of how maybe, you know, escaping society looks. Like maybe you do go out there for some sort of pilgrimage, um, a rite of passage, and and learn something from it. Um, And we can definitely learn from his mistakes. And Gumby uh, kind of, we were talking before the episode and using the term Hayoka, uh, sacred clown, like how sometimes in uh, indigenous cultures, well, many times, many instances, especially, especially in the Lakota culture, um, the, the Hayoka would be a contrary. So in this, in this example, um, Christopher McCandless, as an example, he, um, he didn't bring a map with him. And it was suggested in some of the documentaries and in the book, like maybe he did that because he wanted to be in the middle of nowhere. And if he didn't have a map, well, what better way to be in the middle of nowhere? Because then you don't know what's down the road from you or what's across the river from you. So um, even though some people might look at that as foolish and careless to not have a map, that was something that he did that we could look at as, wow, I mean, he very well could have had a map. He could have gotten out of there alive, but he chose a different path, and I think that's pretty remarkable in itself. Mm-hmm. And... If you want the extremely good, you've got to have the extremely bad. Like, I feel like those, you can't just, it's sort of the, uh, one of the hypnosis of our culture that you can just have the extremely good. And if you keep like, you know, going along the prescribed path, making enough money, then you become Donald Trump and his life must be paradise in heaven. Just look at his face. You know, (laughs) this guy's not living in heaven. Um, Nobody gets there. Nobody gets the extremely good without the extremely bad. It's bullshit. It's part of the brainwashing we get. Chris, I think, understood that. Um, Going back to this guy, Everett Roos, who Teresa brought up earlier, who had several name changes and basically did the same thing Christopher McCandless did in the 1930s. Um, I think of him as a good example. And I guess there's a book out there about this guy. Mm -hmm. We might be doing a podcast about this guy. (laughs) He sounds like a really remarkable guy. Yeah. But – there's a point where he's laying in the woods with poison ivy, and I used to get poison ivy really bad. My eyes would swell shut and everything. He's laying out in the woods, like, covered with poison ivy. He says it's so bad he doesn't know whether he's alive or dead. He's just all swole up. Flies are landing on him, buzzing around. His pus, you know, is coming out of all these blisters. I mean, it is a mess. And I know firsthand how uncomfortable that is. And he writes... He refuses to leave the woods. He will not be driven out of the woods. So to me, this guy had that same understanding, like to get this extremely good, this romantic, beautiful life that I get windows of that sometimes I get to live in. If sometimes it gets really horrendously bad, that's part of it. That's part of the price I pay. I see that in Jesus. I see that in Buddha. You know, Buddha starving himself to the point where they said he could touch his belly and grab his spine. Jesus out there fasting for 40-something days in the desert by himself. You know, like all these people that we think of gain this great understanding, this paradise. They face the extremely bad. And I also think that's part of what Chris was after. Um, 
he had gotten a taste of that, you know, some of those days and other days, you know, he talks about just being despondent, you know, really depressed. And, you know, he talks about loneliness. That's eventually what drove me back home when I was hoboing, um, you know, but he just rolled with it, dealt with that, kept looking, kept searching. Um, so I don't, I don't think it was a waste of time. I feel like he, he gained some of that insight and as the universe would have it, so many of us have heard of him and got part of that message. Um, and who knows, you know, if his personal power, if his destiny had been a little bit differently, what that life would have led to, what other insights, you know, Teresa's talking about the Hayoka. These are people who don't live like the rest of us and they gain unique insights into reality that we can't gain. They are hugely important in our culture. Our culture does not respect these people. Um, other cultures have, they recognize them as shamans, as visionaries, as people that are going to bring back messages from reality that other people can't because they're Hayokas, because they do what nobody else is doing. Yeah. And, uh, something else that I thought was really poignant that was, uh, in one, of, I think it was one of the documentaries or the 2020 interview. And I guess I didn't, I didn't think about it because I don't think that McCandless was in any way suicidal, but he very well, I mean, he had a rifle he very well could have ended his life um, and not gone through that very painful uh, period of starvation, which is what the, the final cause of death was. There's a lot of stuff surrounding, like, you know, how he might have died. Was it this? Was it that? But I think the most important um, thing to remember is he faced it bravely, head on, like just starving to death and all the things that go along with that that are so unpleasant. I mean, you know you're going to die. But, and Gumby, maybe you, you can add more about like the uh, euphoria or the, do you remember that part? Well, you go ahead and oh, talk about okay, well, I've got no insights into that. I mean, yeah, we we haven't done it ourselves or anything. <laughs> I but haven't starved to death. Yeah, yet. evidently, um, like if, if you are starving, you um, get to a point, it's kind of like a plateau where you're no longer feeling very much, you kind of enter the state of euphoria and, and people have kind of conjectured that maybe that's, that was the look on Chris's face in his last photo. But I'd like to think that he, he transcended something like all of that pain. And like Gumby was saying, take the, to get to the really good, you got to go through the really bad. I'm not saying to starve yourself. I'm just saying in his situation, like, I think he he did something, like something happened there, and it was really important, and I'm glad that his his life was inspiring, like it's inspiring to me. And uh, going along uh, again with the idea of Hayoka, you know, we can exalt Chris, we can say like, oh my god, he's such a, a figure in our modern culture, but there's good and bad things about him too. So for example, um, a lot of times you'll hear accounts of how stubborn he was and how he had such rigid um, personal philosophies, asceticism of, you know, like starving, you know, and just going without so many things. Um, and maybe Gumby can talk more about the uh, burning of money. And <laughs> Well, yeah, like Teresa was saying, it sounds like when we hear accounts from Chris, there was also mixed in with all this uh, bravery and idealism um, a certain just like over stubbornness. Like he, he didn't sound like he listened to people. 
I think that's an important part of uh, a wise path myself is listening to people, you know, like considering what they say, like Walt Whitman talks about in the open road. Um, and it doesn't sound like he was very good at that. And again, looking at it from the outside, um, apparently he was part of a conservative Republican group in what college, mm-hmm. high school. And, uh, you know, not that that's inherently any worse than like a liberal democratic group, but, um, it's a surprise, you know, for somebody who made the choices he did, you know, it gives you a kind of a window into, he was looking at it from a direction you might not expect him to be looking at it from. Um, and the burning money, this was something that was interesting. He burned his money at the beginning of him taking off for those two years. Um, and then apparently in one of the documentaries we read, he burned more money in a bar when he was working for, what's the guy's name? Wayne Westerberg. Wayne Westerberg. In yeah. South Dakota. In South Dakota. So he's in a bar and, you know, he likes these people that he's working with and talking to. And uh, one of them in this documentary is saying, the one thing I didn't like about Chris was that night he burned the money. You know, I'm working my ass off to make the money. And here he is, like, you know, instead of giving it to somebody, he just burns it. Um, And I can identify with that a little bit. When I first got a job, when I was in high school, I told people I would never work. I would never make money. I would never spend money. I was not going to have anything to do with money. I was very idealistic. Um, Dropped out of high school. A little bit of time went by and, you know, reality looked differently than I expected. So I wound up getting a job. I ended up feeling like, all right, I got to make money. But I was sort of disappointed with myself. Um, I was not proud of the fact that I had made money, even though I was beginning to see some necessity for it at the time. So with my first paycheck, I took a $20 bill and in the car, you know, I was with like two or three of my friends who went to the bank, cashed our check. I rolled up a big joint with a $20 bill and we (laughs) smoked like this huge doobie. If you can imagine how big of a joint a $20 bill can roll. Um, so we smoked that sucker up and then I burned another $20 bill. I, I was, and some of my friends, you know, when I talked to them later, um, many years later, they said like, oh, that kind of pissed me off when you did that same, same thing as the guy in South Dakota. But for me, it was important to me. It was a symbol. It was that this money does not own me. I didn't want to deal with money because everywhere I looked, money owned people. They would trade their lives for it. They they measured everything by money. They looked around at the, the world, and all they saw were opportunities to make money. How much money can I make from this or that? I really needed to show myself in the beginning that this money, this little fucking piece of green paper, was not my new god. Mm-hmm. I needed to burn it. It was important to me. And... uh yeah, so that's something like I had never heard of Chris. Chris had obviously never heard of me, but I thought that was interesting how we had both found, you know, the need to burn money at times. But before I leave the subject of money, another thing we found that was not in the book in one of the documentaries, a little piece of information that really throws this whole story into a new light, is um, this guy doing the documentary is talking to this old man up in Alaska that had found Chris's backpack. So at first, the guy's like, wow, he's got Christopher McCandless's hiking backpack. Like, that's kind of a bombshell. <laughs> and then the guy, like, reaches in a pocket of the backpack, and damn if he doesn't have Christopher McCandless's wallet. So he pulls that out. And guess what's in this guy's wallet? This guy that two years earlier had burned his ID, had burned his money, had then burned his money in this bar in South Dakota, and now was apparently going out to live in the wild, and people were conjecturing whether he was, you know, not planning on coming out. He wrote a letter to Wayne Westerberg basically saying, if I don't come back out, you know, know that I'm going into the wild. I'm lost in the wild. I'm doing what I want to do, basically. 
So some people are like, oh, I think that many was suicidal. Now, this wallet that he had in his backpack, it's full of forms of ID. At some point in those two years, he went and got more ID. And uh, there was something in the book that said he worked at McDonald's. And Teresa kind of caught on to this. She's like, how did he get a job at McDonald's without ID? You need ID to work at McDonald's. So at some point, he got this ID and saved it. And another part of the story in the book, Into the Wild, his last ride, he gives the guy supposedly all the money he has, which is like, what, 80 cents or something? 89 cents or something like that. But guess what is in his wallet? Over $300. So to me... What that says is he wanted to give this guy something. He, he had divided it in his mind. This is my money that's like, let it go. This is my stuff to let it go. This is my backup plan. Right. You don't go into a suicidal situation with a backup plan. That $300 and that ID was for him if he got out and was like weak, tired, that he could get a damn bus ticket somewhere. He planned on living. I have no doubt that Christopher McCandless was not suicidal. I mean, the wallet alone, to me, is says it all as far as whether he's suicidal or not. Yeah, and it's often, it's, it's difficult for me personally because, um, like, Gumby and I have had discussions about, I've, <laughs> ah, how, ding, how do <laughs> I, um, yeah, how do I really live this life? How do I really escape society when I do have some money, when I do have identification that I could just easily drop right back into society. You know, I still have, you know, credit cards and all sorts of stuff. It's not that I have completely relinquished this. And to me, the knowledge that Chris kept, I mean, he had in his wallet, I'm pretty sure this was in the documentary, um, Call of the Wild, his birth certificate, his social security card, as well as various forms of ID and then that $300. Now, we know that he worked, and he worked uh, supposedly, you know, to get the money to get gear and other things for his Alaskan adventure. So it's not that he was against making money. He, he realized that there was some uh, utility to that. But like Gumby was saying, the actions of keeping this wallet, by the way, in a very secret compartment that the state police of Alaska didn't even find when they were trying to figure out who whose body this was. Yeah, and the guy was saying, well, there's one sign that they did a pretty inept job. Another thing that indicates the inept job is a circulating story at the time for a long time was that he had killed an elk, oh no, caribou. And in his notes, he said he'd killed a moose. So that was one thing that got brought up a lot. It's like, this idiot doesn't even know a caribou from a moose. They don't look anything alike. And so in one of these documentaries, you know, the guy goes and checks it out, and sure enough, it's a freaking moose. You know, there's even a picture of Chris with this moose, undoubtedly a moose. So whatever this investigation was, um, they did a really sloppy, crappy job of it. Yeah, but yeah, but also that Chris, um, he he was kind of playing that line between really doing it, and he really did. I mean, obviously, he let go of a lot, but also having that backup plan of like, you know, maybe... Maybe there is something to this. And he even had talked to his friends, like especially in uh, in South Dakota when he had that job. Like, you know, maybe I'll, after this, maybe, you know, I'm thinking about settling down and maybe having a family or something like that. So I don't, I don't think that this person was suicidal. I think he was doing something. And, and it's important, I think, for all of us to recognize that that is like a, 
I don't know, like a natural feeling of wanting to do this, like to have this experience. Yeah, and uh, as far as the money goes, like the backup plan, I think that's a sign of Chris getting older and wiser. Um, <laughs> but I struggle with the same dichotomy as Chris. Like I think money does put you like in a different mindset. There's a purity in giving rid of getting rid of the money, just complete vulnerability. The more vulnerable you're willing to become, the more open you are to whatever is going to come your way. So money, you know, aside from the actual physical paper of it, is a mindset. You have money because you want security, which by, I feel like, definition is a contraction of that vulnerability. You're not as vulnerable because you have that plan B. So I feel like Chris was getting a little older, maybe a little more cautious, and decided, like, I like the idea of having a plan B. And... I don't know. I still struggle with that. I'm in my early 40s now, and uh, I save up money. Teresa saves up money. We've got plan Bs. You know, we've got options, which in our practical cultural sense is a very wise thing to do. But at the same time, at least once a week, I struggle with this thought of like, am I just pretending? Like, what is out there that I'm not seeing because I'm still holding back? I'm still scared. I still feel like... I need the money because if I need the money, the paper's doing me no good. All it can be is Tinder, and I can find Tinder in the woods. What am I really saying? I need our culture. Mm-hmm. I need our government. I need our economy. I need all this crap tied into it that I'm supposedly trying to escape from and trying to fight. So I feel like maybe Chris was a little ashamed of it. At the same time, he's kind of feeling like, I feel like I need this right now. So... I don't know. <laughs> it's a tricky and a, a really interesting topic to consider that alone as just, you know, plan B versus complete vulnerability because they both have a wisdom of a very different kind of different reality. Um, it said that Chris, before he left, um, wrote a letter to his parents and he poured his heart out about all the things that they were fighting about and like who he was and how he felt about um, his upbringing apparently there was a lot of abuse between his parents that you know it was witnessed by him and his sister and he poured his heart out and the only response he got from his parents were you know thank you for writing that letter we'll save it so maybe your kids can read it (laughs) and that was like kind of one of the final blows for him it sounds like by the way his sister tells the story is like he's like i'm gonna divorce my parents they're out of my my life they're not my parents anymore and hence him taking off you know he even like had the post office hold his letters so his parents wouldn't know he was gone for months so he could get a head start they hired a private investigator that couldn't ever find chris um to me that makes me think of the difference in generations the baby boomers and then there's generation x there's chris's parents the baby boomers there's chris generation x the baby boomers have failed us every generation previous to the current one fails the current one it's a it's a a part of our society we put more and more energy into the economy into destroying the environment so we can make more money to short-term goals and just embrace the ignorance of pretending like there's no such thing as a very long-term goal um, as far as like seven generations hence so i feel like a tactic that was taught around the time of the baby boomers and i'm not sure like how to put this in context um but they lived at a time in the the 60s you know and there's a lot of revolution but i feel like they were sort of 
so many hippies became yuppies. You know, <laughs> it it was more of let's dip our toes in, let's try it, but oh, not quite ready for like a total revolution yet. And I feel like a tactic that was developed with the baby boomers is sweeping things under the rug. Not that they're the only people that do that, but I feel like it was really common there. If something's uncomfortable, sweep it under the rug. Let's not talk about it. Um, just let's ignore it. And Rachel Carson coming out with Silent Spring in the early 60s. You know, this was the baby boomers. Um, and what was the reaction for the most part? Let's just ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. Let's sweep it under the rug. You know, it makes a few concessions that are, like, demanding our attention. And other than that, eh, let's ignore it. And it's been the strategy in place ever since. And Generation X, we got disgusted with it, disillusioned with it. Um, I feel like Generation X, we didn't really, there wasn't a whole lot of fighting it, not enough anyway. We just wanted to get the hell out of there. We were sick of it. We wanted to abandon it, jump ship, like Chris. Um, And right now, Generation X, we're the ones having kids, not Teresa and I per se, but most of our friends, we're failing the next generation. (laughs) We're just taking on that same tactic, sweep it under the rug. Uh, If it's not right in our face and demanding our attention right now at this moment, oh, our lives are so busy, it's so hard, you know, let's just ignore it. Yeah, it's hard, but (laughs) I mean, yeah, I guess I don't have a lot more to say to that. I've already (laughs) said it. Um, This is the pressure of our society, living like that. Like, I grew up really poor, um, and Chris grew up more wealthy. Um, But when I hear the description of how he grew up, the abuse in his household, the physical abuse between his parents, the, the turmoil, you know, it was... It was contrasted in the uh, documentaries about how they'd go on camping trips sometimes. So he'd see the woods, and that was when he was the happiest, way happier than when he was home. Man, I can identify with that. I'd go in in the woods and walks with my mom, and beautiful flowers, bees, you know, the breeze, the sun. Then we go home, and, like, it's dad getting drunk, it's abuse, it's shouting, it's uh, fear, you know. And the pressure, the pressure of this society, I feel like, for some of us can just squeeze you and squeeze you until some of us just pop right out like a cork i mean it's almost like we don't have a choice i feel like maybe it was like that for chris it was like that for me um you know sometimes i consider whether i can get back into society because there are some days that are really despondent and hard and hopeless out here i hear about what the people in the resistance are saying and it's like man (laughs) i don't agree with what they're saying either you know a lot of the ways people are trying to fight they sound just as pig-headed as the people that are ensconced in society and I wonder, can I just give up and live a life that's comfortable? And I don't feel like I can. I don't feel like Chris could either. It just squeezes you out and pops you right out. Yeah, and another pressure that I feel like I can speak a little more to personally, my personal experience is like the pressure of perfection. And I'm not saying that Chris felt like he was perfect, but I do feel like uh, from what we've read and, and heard about him, he made really good grades. He excelled at everything he tried to do, whether it was, uh, you know, selling things and making money or like being on the cross country team, like everything he did, he put his all in it and he like, he succeeded every single time. And I'm certainly like, (laughs) I am way far from perfect, but I feel like I had kind of a similar experience in a way. I mean, I got good grades I did, you know, the college thing and all of that and I haven't really, you know, gotten in trouble or anything, but it also creates this pressure of upholding that. So in other words, because I haven't gotten in trouble, because 
of my record of perfection, so to speak, it's really difficult for me to get out of that. I feel like there's this this pressure, maybe, I mean, I'm imposing it on myself, but also from society that it's like, well, you've made it this far and you haven't messed up, so why don't you just keep going and, and don't step out of line? Um, I remember back in 2005, I went on my first road trip and my uncle and I went together for the majority of the way across the country. And then he was going one way, I was going another way. And I didn't really have a plan, but I was playing it safe at that point. I wasn't hitchhiking or, or really even camping that much by myself. I was actually going to stay at hotels and spend my money, but I wanted to see the countryside on my own and maybe even find another place to live outside of North Carolina. But what happened was parental control. And I guess I, I allowed it to happen. Maybe I should have disappeared um, from my parents, but I didn't. And my mom ended up joining me on my trip back to North Carolina because I didn't have a plan. So she came and got me and like, mommy, mommy. she, uh, you know, she was worried about me. Like, Many parents are about their kids. So that was really difficult for me. And then in 2013, I went to Nepal. And Gumby always makes fun of me for saying. Have you been to Nepal? Yes, I have. And um, again, my parents, especially my mom, was like, you know, Teresa, is this something like a death wish? You know, you're you're giving away your possessions. You're, you're going on this journey that is dangerous and you're going by yourself and you don't know anybody over there. Like, what is this about? And I was going over to stay at an orphanage. I thought maybe it would be a good thing, but my, my mom especially looked at it like I was just endangering my life. And so I feel like it's really difficult for a lot of people to get out of that that bubble of perfection or that parental control, even if your parents, like, even if they're not doing that, but you have it in your head. And so I feel like that was also something of maybe what Chris was dealing with. Um, but yeah, for me, it was really hard to, to break from that. And I'm still, like, I'm still working on it. Yeah, I feel like from the outside, what sometimes looks like a death wish, from the inside, it's actually a life wish. Yeah. Um, One of the things Chris had highlighted um, is in Walden and Thoreau. I think it's Walden, but it's definitely Thoreau. You know, I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately, to put to rot all that was not life and not realize when I'd come to die that I had not yet lived. And I feel like that's something, like, that drives us out there. When I say us, I mean the Chris McCandlesses, the the hitchhikers, the the people that make these decisions that other people are like, what the hell is that person thinking? <laughs> we want to live. And, you know, the windows we have into living don't have much to do with what our culture shows us we should do. Um, yeah. And something else that I identified with in the, well, in everything that we learned about uh, McCandless is that he felt a a huge hypocrisy of being in a family who had money versus those people who didn't. And he actually had um, half-siblings from his father's first marriage, and he there was a lot of uh, question as to whether that was the reason why he, he like ran away from his family and just hated his parents so much. But dealing with the, the idea of having so much more when other people are doing without so much. And again, I'm not saying that money is the fix for everything, but that's a difficult 
uh, idea to come to terms with. And that's a unique thing about our culture. And when I say our culture, again, I don't mean America. I mean the culture that has taken over the world at this point. You don't see this in indigenous cultures. Uh, class hierarchy makes no freaking sense. How are you going to live comfortably around neighbors when they have too much and you have too little? Um, what happens when something hap- like unexpected happens and the people with too much have too little? You know, like who's going to take care of them? Because they were bastards, you know, that weren't taking care of the other people around them. So I feel like those of us who, like Chris, felt like there's a hypocrisy, there's a problem there, we're kind of intuiting a very human feeling. It's not right. It's not like just a different point of view. It's not right. It doesn't work. Yeah, and along with that, I mean, just all the... Well, I don't want to say privilege because I think that word is loaded and we'll talk about that in another episode. But all of these things that we're told that we should do, whether it's getting good grades, going to college, getting a good job, making money, having a you know nice looking house and car and all that. I would just say like as my kind of final thought is if you are... Um, considering, you know, going to college or, or maybe people are pressuring you into doing things. Just wait. I mean, that would be my, that would be, um, what I would say to people is if, if college is looming in the near future for you, maybe go on one of these, um, pilgrimages, go around the world, see how other people are, experience something. And, and even if it's not like flying to a different country, just, going around where you live at and seeing how other people live and and experiencing things. I went to college. I don't remember crap from it. I'm not in any sort of job or really have I held a job where I needed a college degree or anything I learned in college. If the description for the job said you needed a college degree, whatever, it's so arbitrary. But um, I guess my final advice from all of this is live your life. Don't just do what's prescribed. Don't just do, you know, what everyone is telling you to do so that you could have a good life. Because even though, you know, what happened to Alex, to Chris McCandless, is that he ended up perishing. Like we said before, the time he had on this earth, he lived that life. He wasn't just going through the motions and jumping through hoops like everybody told him to do. And I would say for a final thought for me... um of course, this podcast is not an exhaustive biography of Christopher McCandless. Hopefully, we've given you um, some resources if you want to read up more on him and watch documentaries. It's worth the uh, it's worth the the time spent. Um, and I like what this guy said at the end of one documentary. He was puzzling over what may have killed Chris, and that's a big mystery that we didn't really get into. But you know, after he spent some time talking about it, he said, you know, and then I realized. I'm kind of missing the point. It's not about the way he died. It's about the way he lived. Um, and I definitely like that that idea, that sentiment, because mm-hmm. his life was extraordinary. And if it inspires anybody to take a chance, to see how little you can do without, to be vulnerable and see what the universe gives you when you're not protecting yourself and doing all the culturally approved bullcrap, um, God, get inspired. Go do something. Exactly. And if you have done something like that, if you've had an adventure in your life or you have any comments or questions, please contact us. Our website is escapingsociety.weebly.com. There's a contact form there. Uh, We also have YouTube videos on 
um, some ways that maybe could help you escape from society, especially if you want to try out van life. And as always, like I said, we welcome comments, uh, questions, suggestions, and any stories that you want to share. So thank you very much for listening. Bye.